That's right, it's your shit host Chris from Between the Profound and the Profane, a comedy podcast from thebonushours.com. Between the Profound and the Profane, where lifelong friends gather together to trade friendly stories, give friendly advice, and try to learn something new about their friends. And while we're at it, maybe make some new friends. So if you would like to be a new friend, why don't you jog on over to thebonushours.com and get you a heavy dose of what we call Between the Profound and the Profane, part of the No Phony Podcast Network, found at nophonynetwork.com. our intro to our recording (laughs) so ladies and gentlemen welcome to heroes garage we talk about (laughs) fantasy superheroes um science fiction we do this once a week welcome this is a review show so be careful and we're ready to go bill how you doing i'm doing great tom (laughs) how's that (laughs) (laughs) so as we do our research online because the best producing I think that we've ever done in the history of the show has been on mic. Right. Would you agree, Bill? I would, Tom. It's that spontaneity that just rings through, Tom. And that is pretty much the hallmark of our show, as we like to dive into the deeper aspects of these shows and talk them into the ground. I mean, really (laughs) analyze them. Well, yeah, we tried a couple approaches. I mean, the last time in Expanse, we broke down every episode or combined couple of episodes because as a science fiction show, uh, there was a lot that was there and a lot going on. Um, you have multiple subplots, multiple um, characters. Uh, every character has a specific weight to it. So I felt it, it felt normal or i wouldn't say normal but the best way to approach it was to break it down where i think our next few reviews we could definitely just kind of lump them as a season together and just talk about would you agree tom i do agree we're going to do the lump approach with our next few reviews today our audience should be aware that we will be reviewing lost in space season two this is a netflix entity That's where you can find it if you so choose to run to your local streaming service and either sign up or log in or both. And, um, yeah, we're going to do the whole season because I don't think that we can necessarily talk this into the ground like we could with The Expanse. So I totally agree with with what you said earlier. Yeah, there's uh, there's a simplicity to the show because it really is a family-based show. And um, it comes across as that, but that's not a bad thing. No. Because uh, 
there's definitely some very strong elements to the show and a lot of deep lessons that are going on that um, carries a lot of science fiction, but also moral dilemmas. I agree. And before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to let people know the creative teams on this property because I have a feeling once we start going, we're going to go. Um, bless you. Hope everything came out okay over there. I was just dropping stuff during the recording, Tom. Do you still have all of your toes and fingers? I think I'm fine. You're good. Okay. So the series was directed by Tim Southham or something like that. Five episodes. Um, Stephen Sergic did three episodes. Alex Graves, Neil Marshall, John East, Deborah Chow, Vincenzo Natali, David Nutter, Alice Troughton, Leslie Hope, and Jabbar Wazani. They all directed episodes. Excellent. We have characters. We have credits going to Irwin Allen, Matt Suzama, Burke Sharpless, Vivian Lee, Kari Drake, Danielle McClellan, Catherine Collins, Zach Estrin, Ed McCarty, Shim Winsberg, and Liz Segal. They all get writing credits on this property. And as far as the cast and the um, cast is led by Molly Parker as Maureen Robinson, Toby Steffens as John Robinson, Maxwell Jenkins as Will Robinson, Taylor Russell as Judy Robinson, Mina Sandwell as Penny Robinson, Ignacio Seraccio as Don West, Parker Posey as Dr. Smith, Brian Steele as the robot, Raza Jeffrey as Victor Daw. AJ Freeze is VJ Daw. And I'm going to stop there. I'm probably missing some important people. They have Amelia. Was that good? Yeah, I think so. Good. Um, yeah. So, quick summary this is about a family that's lost in space. <laughs> <laughs> Are they, though? Are they? Are they truly that lost with scientists? Really that brilliant? lost? It seems like they're lost and they're found. Yeah, they're. Well, in the first season, they did a lot of stuff on a planet, and at the end of that season, they escaped by the skin of their teeth. And this season picks up seemingly right after that. They've found their way to a new planet. They've constructed devices and structures that can allow them to to, um, kind of plant and grow food. And But then, of course, bad things start happening, and... Uh, robots show up and other entities are there and it kind of devolves and evolves. So, Bill, I'm missing major portions of that story. Is there a, a, a more thorough story that we need to tell the folks before we dive into our review? No, I, I think that there, you hit the high level um, because we left, a, I would say, a very um, cliffhanging type of episode robot is fighting with another robot as they're tumbling through space yeah and the family gets sucked into a black hole and you don't know where they end up at and so it's a really cliche type of cliffhanger and then we pick up where uh we don't necessarily see you know them traveling through the hole but 
the wormhole, I should say. It's not really a black hole, the wormhole. And um, ending up in another planet and missing the robot and Will's, um, um, I guess, sadness of missing his connection to his friend. And then, uh, you know, seeing also how uh, Dr. Smith is paying for her sins, um, being in confinement. So I think that um, from branching off from a one to two, that's kind of a, the summary of that as well. I'll give a, a quick summary of some important objects, spaceships, and other things to remember. Uh, the Jupiter 2 is the ship that the Robinson family is stranded on when they end up on that mysterious ocean planet. The, the Resolute is another spaceship. Is that correct, Mr. Bill? Yeah, that's the, 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 uh, the main ship, I would mm-hmm. say, right? Okay, and then there's a, this whole idea of safe passage to Alpha Centauri. Right. So Alpha Centauri is another name to keep in mind. Because that's the, where the colony is being built. That's the okay. ultimate... I, I believe the ultimate um, solution for Earth's inhabitants is Alpha Centauri. Okay, so that's kind of like the, the goal. The that's end, the goal. The end game, shall, the, yeah. the movie that shall not be mentioned. <laughs> so, story-wise, let's get into a critique. As a critique yeah. of the story, we're going to go first to our film critic with some actual knowledge and expertise on the Subject matter of critiquing a story in a movie. Bill, how did they do? You know, uh, I thought they started off well. Uh, you'd have to bring something to the table if you have um, robots tumbling through space, um, the unknown, and that the unknown that they land on isn't the best unknown, is it? And no. Because they still they can't breathe. Um, there are some electric, uh, occurrences happening. There's a lot of mystery to the planet. Um, they're really in survival mode. Uh, and I think that that's, that's pretty good. Um, because you don't all of a sudden put them in a true desperate situation mm-hmm. that is like all of a sudden chaos, uh, because the characters have already been established as, really having the most genius out of anybody, right? Yeah. So it seems like the family really could survive anywhere, and they established that, and they are. And uh, so I, I thought that uh, it, you look for a story that it's going to be natural according to the way that the um, characters have been established, um, you know, the whole planetary discovery mode. And, you know, also giving a nod to uh, the original series, because that's really what the original series was about, was how they would hop from one planet to another to better themselves or to actually, um, if they can't find uh, mankind, at least they could live in a situation where um, they could survive in. And so they, they keep that integrity of that story. So I thought that from beginning that they did a great job with that. Yeah, I thought so too. I think um, 
I'll speak to the emotional pieces because that's pretty much my area of expertise. I like what they do with how they set up the dynamic between the, the different members of the family, the Robinson family. And essentially, if you don't get the robot and the Robinsons right, the two R's, you're going to have a lot of trouble with Lost in Space. So, <laughs> uh, like I, whatever, I'm not comparing it to the old one because I don't remember enough of it to get snarky about things that don't work compared to the old one. So I'm not doing that. I'm just looking at what they're giving me in this series. And they've given me a matriarchy. The mom is the one who's got the scientific smarts and the confidence and makes really strong decisions. And when you're in outer space and pretty much your livelihood and survival is pretty much based on science, um, you're not going to do a whole lot of grunting and running and fighting and, and survive. At least that's not the story that we're getting. No. And so she's she's the leader of the pack. Um, she's got a couple of a daughter and a son who are also genius level. <laughs> uh, who in and of the in and of their themselves could probably outthink anybody that they they run up against. Um, and then the dad and the other daughter, the two ginger-haired characters. I'm not sure if that's a, a bias of some kind, but they're not as smart as the other ones. Um, now, one's got the military background. That's the dad, right? Yeah. He's, yeah. he's tactical. He's uh, he's the protector, right? Because you need that alpha male to the to the group. And Penny is, and then they do a great job with Penny, I think, too, is establishing that Penny really doesn't know how she fits into this brainiac family. She doesn't know how she can really add to the science and survival of everybody. She. And and it's good because it does give her an insecurity. It doesn't. Um, it's part of her journey in the story as well that they plant seeds on. And then you have Don, who is, you know, this um, pirate, the smuggler, um, but he is very talented with ships and um, how ships function. So it seems for the most part, a lot of people, a lot of most of the characters um, have usefulness, except for Penny. <laughs> Yeah, she she doesn't have as much um on the surface. Uh, right? No. They they try to involve her in a couple of little side shoot things. I guess they call them minor story arcs. Right. And I don't know if it's I get all these characters names mixed up, but they go on these little escapades and they they try to figure some things out, but because Penny and John do not have the technical and scientific expertise they're they kind of lag behind the other characters as far as character development in some ways, although that's not quite right. We're I'm bleeding into our discussion yeah. about characters, so I'm going to pull out of that before I start Pulls making that mistake. Yeah. So so they're stranded on the um on the the planet. Um, they kind of take a vote whether they should stay or leave, and the the vote is for them to stay, and then unfortunately. Something happens, Tom, to their crops where they mm. decide, well, looks like we have to leave and um, get off of this ship or this planet. Yeah. What other show did we see that was very well made, great cinematography, based off a book, it was a motion picture, where they scienced the crap out of the, out of the situation and then a major catastrophe occurs and now they need to get off planet. <laughs> Oh, Ring that, any bells? 
Yes, yes, I'm trying to, oh, I know what it is, but I you, you threw a curveball at me, and I'm swinging and missing. I know, it, I feel kind of Martian-like in this conversation, and no, I'm not trying to... <laughs> hey. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay, Mars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they that same thing happened, so um, right. they, they had to get everything moving, because when things stay in one stack, they get stagnant, and we know that we just look no further than the Dead Sea in the Middle East. To know that 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 principle is fast and true, so in a story that has to happen too, right? <laughs> right, or even season one of Lost in Space, we saw a lot of of it that show being stagnant. Yeah, you have to keep things moving, so you can't just be on this planet with the same variables that we've seen a million times in a million different shows. So they get the pile moving, and they have to get off of that planet. Right. And I liked. I think what I liked about that is that each one of the characters was within their character and doing what they do. I like Dr. Smith. She's always in the background wreaking havoc of some kind. Yes. And, and that he, she's kind of the, the havoc wreaker. And then you have, who's the guy who's, it's he's Don. such a Don West. I like his character. He, his character's the best. Yeah. he's He moves the story along because he's kind of, He's taking a supportive advocate, kind of a helper role, fitting in where he, getting in where he can fit in, and it just works with the story. Yeah, and also he brings in comedy relief too that needs yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so because he's that kind of gunslinger guy that is always making the off the cuff comments, so he he's, he comes across as the the uncle of the group, I would say. Yeah, he is like a, the fun uncle. Um, with He has his own little tricks up his sleeve, as we find out later in the story, when the Robinsons run into a, a new group of baddies. Um, yeah. And that group is, the name and how to even describe them is completely slipping my mind. But the Jupiter 2 makes its way to the Resolute. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, and and, that, and they episodes. Uh, I think it was the first two episodes of uh, was was fun. Um, yeah, they, you know, the whole getting the ship. The the ship is like a ship, and um, you know, even Doctor Smith. She sailed boats, and she she adds her thing and is proud of herself to show uh, Maureen that she has value and. And, um, you know, she wants to be part of the family. And uh, so I, that, I thought that was all fun, especially. And then they're you know, showing some uh, interesting parts of the planet with the seaweed and then the light lightning rods in the middle of the planet. There's a little mystery there, a little foreshadowing going on. And um, but I, I thought that it, it, it did a good job in the first few episodes in getting everything going. And then, yeah, they get into the Resolute, which I was kind of surprised that uh, they transitioned that so quickly that they found the Resolute. Because, honestly, Tom, I was looking more of them just being completely lost in space. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and then you get into problems when you're lost in space, um, not to be too corny and goofy at the same time. But you have to come up with tragedies and working your way through all those tragedies and so they make their way to the resolute i don't know where i was going with that so i'm going to go back to the actual story they make their way to the resolute and from there 
How do you describe this? I feel like they run into the mechanism, like the working government or the they have contact with people who are connected to the larger system, and some of those people are not all good. Yeah, well, it's interesting is they they actually come on the get to the resolute and they show up to a, an empty ship. So, which then immediately is uh, focusing on the mystery of what happened, which is is good plot and storyline. Um, you know, if they just showed up and everybody's hugging each other and, um, you know, now it's kind of like it, it's unoriginal. But for them to show up and this ship is empty, Smith goes and does her diabolical deeds um, to kind of clear herself. And, you know, they're really trying to figure out what's going on in the Resolute. And, um, and, and then, you know, everybody kind of comes back and tells the story of what happened and so I, I thought that was a very good plot build um, that gives some mystery but as well as it's not really safe in space right yeah yeah I agree I mean that's where the interesting stuff happens though because there's so much more to explore on right. the Resolute I mean you have different some characters are, are supportive of the Robinsons some are kind of working agendas and they're some of it's it's not as complex as the expanse by even my own imagination, um, but it is interesting. Um, yeah. What's the name of the character who is kind of the male version of the bad or human version of the bad guy? He's what's his name? Yeah, you're talking about the one that uh, worked with the Maureen. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And um, he. Yeah, I can't remember. I want to think of him, but anyway, yeah, he's. Uh, we get to reveal his agenda, and we are revealed. Then there's more going on with this alien engine, and um, more going on with the history with the alien age engine. That there was a pilot that was there, and they start really opening up a little bit more into the mystery of the robot. And why they came to attack um, the Resolute and wreak havoc, um, and, and I, you know, I like how they really open up the uh, the episode more to giving you a little more history, and I and I think that's just that's good storytelling because there's a lot to reveal of what needs to be seen in in the past because they really really blanketed the past quite a bit, um, which is, you know, intentional. And uh, it, it adds for, you know, more reveal of the ultimate story of, you know, we found this, there was actually an alien that was attached to it. We, you know, basically stole its powers, locked him in a box because he's an alien. And, um, you know, and then everything kind of ensues after that. It's interesting that we can relate so so much to that story narrative to, to kind of connect a strand to the real world. Like mm-hmm. it's one of those concepts we talk a lot about in, in the mental health field is this fear of the unknown, um, the us versus them mentality, but they lock this alien away. And part of it is based on knowledge that these robots might be friendly and might not be friendly. 
And but that's also true of the human experience as well, right? right? You can't just look at, you know, a, a culture or a group of people and say, well, it must be bad because one of them was bad. You know, that doesn't work. And so, but they feel perfectly justified in throwing this robot into a container and locking it away. And in that way, science fiction, I believe, is very unique and very useful in storytelling because it takes these inanimate objects, things that shouldn't have a conscience or they're not technically alive, and they take on the attributes of living things and they can tell a story through that and kind of play around with that. And you start to realize, oh, wow, that was kind of a thing, right? You just locked this thing in yeah, a container. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you didn't do anything so, with it. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it does um, it, it does a lot. Um, is it Adler? Is that him? Um, it could be Ben no, Adler. Adler. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I want to think that it was him. I had trouble. No. I have to admit here, I, I full confession on Mike. I kind of lost parts of the story in some of the strands, and like the, all the robots that showed up, all that stuff. <laughs> I kind of didn't track as well as I needed to. Like, how did they get there, and why are yeah. they here? Where did they come from? Are they just kind of these rabid? Robot yeah. virus that roam the, the galaxies. Yeah, there. You're you're like that's a leap and bound. Okay, so there you go. Finale. <laughs> that's okay. And then I didn't track. I can't even remember his name. Like, I know that's that there's. Ad- a, I believe his name is Adler. Okay, Adler. Right. Like, I kind of knew yeah. that he was somewhat connected to Doctor Smith, or. No, he was no. he was attached to Marine. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. Marine Marine made a deal with him with Adler, right. to get her son to save her son and they did a nice little story twist on that right. didn't they? Yeah, so the the uh, you know the and and I think that you know they get on they get on the ship um you know the, there's a story dilemma of how do we get to Alpha Centauri how do we you know Adler has his means and it's basically to torture this pilot to make him submit to steer steer the engine and um, so you, you have that going on and then you have uh, will's quest to um, you know try to find the robot right and it just is it does kind of take off uh, into two storylines now that um, Will is, it's all about finding the robot and what's going on there. And then you have the ultimate mission of how do we get to Alpha Centauri and then all the little pieces that are connected to that. Um, you know, and that's, um, you know, that becomes um, kind of the impetus for the, the ultimate part of the movie that, uh, or show that it ends up being, right? Yeah. And they're, they're just to continue this whole, narrative i think it's interesting how adler kind of represents that portion of people that believes it's okay to manipulate coerce lock away people that don't fit in within the the dominant group and in within this storyline they represent the other side through the the entire robinson family who has goodwill for you know both robot and human alike but specifically through will's character is he yeah. the friends, uh, the robot, and he 
he's not afraid of the robots. He's working with the robots and they're trying to figure out how they can, um, uh, I guess, survive, but also yeah. use the robots that, that are on their side in a beneficial way. Because there certainly are robots in this story that are mean. Right, right. And I think what says you're saying in the, um, it kind of meanders a little bit um, in delaying the robot, um, you know, getting his signal. And then when he finds a robot, he didn't really find robot. It was the other robot that was impersonating robot. <laughs> That that had my head spinning around like a 360 degree. It was all the whole cave area, right? And, um, you know, when he was like, we need to run because he realized that's not his robot, but he's masking himself. So a bit of, a bit of my neck felt like it was, it was transformed into a universal joint that just turned around and around and around on its wheel bearing because I didn't know well, it kind of gets into that. Um, oh. You know, and, you know, Adler is joining them, um, you know, because he's the one that's really running with uh, with the Scarecrow. And then there's, I'm sorry, it wasn't Adler, it was Hastings. Hastings. It was Hastings. Uh, I got it at the same time you did. Yep, you're yeah, right. It was it was Hastings that really was the, the planner all that. And Adler is really the tool of Hastings. And, you know, I mean, that I thought that was some good drama of, some good science fiction and drama it didn't fall off it progressed um there's conflict you know they f- realize there's a virus on um well some microorganism that is on the planet that is going to eat away at like titanium and then they bring it in the ship and it causes um, really one of the coolest scenes i thought um was when they were all getting into the the freezer together and being launched into space and and you could kind of hear uh, West, um, Don West voice crackling in the background of how he's communicating to them. And I thought that was really good drama. I, I felt that part of the show to me was really exciting um, in the storyline of you got to see how Penny really her strength is is leadership and collaborative thinking. Yeah. And. Um. Uh. So she is showing her talents, right? And yeah. I thought that was really. And then he had some scientific coolness that was going on there. Uh. I, I thought the overall. I thought that was really uh, a great scene. Uh. Because there, there is to me it. They let off the pedal a little bit. And I think they were they did that to establish all these other things that are going on, and you had to kind of wait. Um, and I didn't feel like waiting in the story. Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that all makes sense. I mean, they all get their place to shine, not to dumb down a story that was actually more complex than that. I thought Judy, Judy became a real analyzer and a very scientific contributor, as well as a medical contributor at yeah, times. Yeah. And because she's got this training in, in medical training and. For a minute, uh, Toby's falls into a mine shaft. That's on Alpha Centauri, right? Yeah. Yeah, that whole piece happens, and then later on in the story, a few episodes. uh, No, that was in the um, the desert planet that they're mining. Yeah, Um, I can't remember the name of that planet. Yeah. No, Alpha Centauri is eventually where they're going to see. But the thing is, is when you binge watch like way we did, 
I think yeah. you binge watched a little faster than I did on this one. Too um, fast, it sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> but anybody who listens to the podcast, they could relate to, okay, I just binge watched uh, Lost in Space for the past five days, and I want to hear somebody talking about it. And there's all these little pieces that you're missing because you binge watched it and you didn't really take it. Like, yeah. you didn't chew your food slowly. You no, I swallowed it. chunks. I definitely <laughs> swallowed chunks. I've got the stomach aches and the other symptoms to, to prove it, um, as there's a lot of hiccups <laughs> in my narrative here. So I, I think just to kind of wrap up the plot line, because it, 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 Thank it you. goes... <laughs> <laughs> we're, I think we're trying to do that, and we're, we're mixing. <laughs> uh, I think that if I would scale the plot line, I believe that it started off good. Don't start from the beginning, though. I know I, I'm kind of tracing it because <laughs> you're going to get bogged down. <laughs> it is a graph. It's a graph, right? You okay. start off strong, you dip a little bit, you dip a little further. And then all of a sudden you pull up and then you take off. By season, by episode six, it just all of a sudden becomes something. And episode six, I believe, is when they do the the locker when they're all stuck in the locker and they get catapulted in space to save the ship from the the infestation. And um, now it gets really deep in the story. The characters are settled. Um, Smith is, you know, playing this double-edged sword. Um, and, and it it gets exciting because now conflict is, and that's what always makes a good story is there's conflict, there's mutiny, um, you know, there's a whole lot that's going on. Uh, Robot has independence. Um, he's learned to taught and feel friendship and love, and and they cover a lot of elements and they do it well. And I think they pull it off when they finally connect to the robot. I think that there was a t- period of time when we don't get with the robot. That it just becomes like, oh gosh, would you find robot already? We can stop Will from whining, and um, and then after they do, I think that it takes off from a storyline and to, I believe, a really good ending. I agree. It had a really nice payoff at the end. Uh, the mm-hmm. parents, like emotionally, just speaking to the emotional yeah. beats of the story, I think the parents didn't just feel like an ex-marine and a scientist. They felt right. like mom and dad. They had to make tough decisions that were all about separating from their children for the right. survival of their children. I thought that was right. powerful. I thought they supported each one of their children differently in the ways that made help them to feel supported based on their right. skills and strengths and stuff. I thought that was great. Yeah. Um, they maintained the connection between Will and the robot, which to me is you know, central to this whole story. You have to have Will and the robot getting along and doing, doing their little thing, Izzle. I thought that the um, tension that was built with the bad guys and the bad robots, I thought all that made sense, and it worked by the end. Um, and they found a way to weave in Dr. Smith and the fun uncle, Don West, and they had their roles, and they, that all made sense and worked. So that's my yeah. summary. I think I did all that in 27 seconds. Yeah, you wrapped it up real good. So to answer your alien alien question of where they come from, they did actually did spot them on radar and uh, mm-hmm. that was part of the decoding of the message that um, that uh, um, Smith and Robinson were colluding against to get access to understanding what they were hearing across space. And what they were hearing across space was aliens were coming and they're coming in fast. 
And so, um, which kind of led into a lot of this, um, boy, we got to get the scarecrow. We got to get this robot. You know, they, that's why they get rid of the Robinsons and get the robot in. And, uh, it was good. It was just very natural of how characters would respond. And, um, I, I really liked how the plot with the characters, uh, really drove, um, it simultaneously. Um, yeah, it kind of dipped into some of the teenage drama, but hey, teenage kids have drama. Um, Why do they ever? <laughs> and it was a good, and it's a good um, family show, I believe. It uh, it's very good because, um, like you said, is the separation of the kids and the family. Wow, talk about if you're watching the show with your family. Um, man, it's uh, mm. it's pulling at the heartstrings there because it's almost like a Noah's Ark type of scenario, and um, mm. yeah. So I, I really I really enjoyed it um, because ultimately, what's a parent's ultimate vision is to save their kids, just to that they they move on, and because um, the worst thing for a parent is to lose their children, and yes, it's it goes vice versa, but I think that. It's just the order of things. And so it was very dramatic. Um, you felt it. Uh, they did a great job with it. Um, even if you don't have kids, um, even if you're 20 something or 30 something, you could, we all could relate to that. And they pulled it off and they pulled it off very well. I agree. So when we think about the highlights and lowlights and the characters, we've probably touched on a lot of highs for a lot of the Robinson family, Don West, Dr. Smith. So maybe we could start that conversation with some of those peripheral characters. I call them peripheral because those characters that I just rattled off are kind of the central focus and the robot of the Lost in Space story. Yeah. Were yeah. there any of these uh, outside characters that you thought really did well or really didn't do as well as they probably could have? Well, Adler was he, – he was a – Ben Adler was um, – a very central character within this series um, with his wanting to connect with a robot. Couldn't do that with Scarecrow um, for obvious reasons. And, um, but in the end he uh, realizes um, through what wills and robots interaction that really there is a, a camaraderie. There is a sharing that's there. There's a loyalty that's there, mm-hmm. and um, as a scientist, he he that's how he approached everything was uh, from a scientist rather than I, I would for lack of a better term a human approach, which is more heart and soul. And so he was as soulless as as um, he as the robot he was torturing, mm-hmm. and um, he had a good arc that he because robot wanted him saved that Adler said, I get it now. And, you know, it didn't, it felt a little forced, I believe, um, yeah. but not completely, you know, yeah. Yeah. It, it did worse because he, it's hard to take someone. But I think that when you have somebody who in their heart of hearts really want it to be a connection, hope to be a connection, then all of a sudden sees a connection will will turn. At least you'd hope that. And that's that's where mm-hmm. it gets in that gray area of character decision making. Uh, is is his natural response to 
sacrifice himself, take the robot, you know, pay for his sins. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's, uh, that's always the gray area when you take kind of these big climatic scenes, right? Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's, yeah, I think another potential, I'm not saying it's a low point. It wasn't low. It's probably, if I had a scale from zero to 10, it dips down to five and it kind of lives in that five to six and a half range. And you're like, what are you talking about? It's the whole Hastings <laughs> character. Um, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, it's, I mean, if you don't have a well-developed motivation or you haven't developed the characteristics of a character, your best bet is to not give too much because it'll look right. worse and worse. <laughs> right. So I think they know that and they don't give it a lot. And I think that was smart because there isn't a lot of meat on that bone. It's pretty, pretty empty. It's a dry, barren bone that's been licked and, and chewed clean. And <laughs> we haven't had the opportunity, nor do we really want to see how the meat got removed from that appendage um yeah trying to think if there's if there's another i guess the you know the they are a character group is that virus robot virus that's roaming around the galaxies i guess that probably benefits from a lack of knowing as well and it's science fiction it's a trope if you have robots and it's you know it's digital or it's driven digitally or however the robots function that's another thing too like (laughs) It's yeah. it's always the thing of these things like how are you powered? Um, what what what's your operating system? I mean, how do you communicate? You know, all that kind of stuff just kind of goes out the window because they're robots. Um, they're robots. They're AI. They're active AI robots. Yeah, and AI does what AI does, and it's you know beyond <laughs> us, and it's out there, and it's a trope, but it works yeah. well enough because it looks really dangerous, doesn't it, Bill? It does, and their and their faces are red. Yes, and they get really fiery, spinny, sharp tentacles. And when they fight, it's pretty convincing that that's not a place you want to be around as a human being. <laughs> not at all. And I thought the whole trapman scene and everything was really cool, too. And then, you know, wrapping up in a, a bow, did Smith really die? Of course she didn't, because she's all about survival, isn't she? Yes, she is. And I, I love that they've built that. They've baked that into her story, her character, and we know that that loaf of bread is going to rear up <laughs> some season three. So our our final final scene now is they um the robot takes them to the closest human signal, which everybody thought was going to be Alpha Centauri, but it is not. And they end up seeing the spaceship that is revealed was where uh, Judy's dad was um, appeared lost. Right. Right. I forgot the name of the ship. That would have been a nice thing for me to jump in and say. What's it? The Fortuna. The Fortuna. The Fortuna. So it was fortuitous in some ways that they found this ship. Um, in the sense that it opens up a whole new interesting set of questions yes. that we want answers to, right, Bill? Well, I, I I think that, you know, and this is kind of going into the grading of the series, uh, you know, I think 
if I reflect on our, our first review of this, we it was okay. Lost in Space was okay. It had its highs, its lows, but it didn't really make you feel like, oh, you know, when season two comes around, I can't wait. Uh, matter of fact, I actually had to go see the last episodes to figure out where we left the season two because I've already forgotten about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this one sets up in um a real interesting way because yes now you have a ship full of children right now the fortuna is is still active and her father grant kelly appears to be alive because there was a human signal that uh, drew the robot to so he might be just suspended into space which is going to really reveal ultimately where the story is going to go to because Maybe something happened to Alpha Centauri. Maybe something's going on more with those robots or that planet, because we still have an answers of the planet with the lightning rods, other than this is probably where the robots came from. So there's a lot of unanswered uh, pieces of the plot that is going to make it you know, Smith alive. It's, so there's a lot of pieces here that it's going to seems to be, um, you know, more interested in getting revealed. Which I want to jump into a rabbit hole, but I want to announce it ahead of time. So, and we can come back to that. Um, the discussion about the entertainment value, if you don't mind. Oh, hey, I, no. think, I feel like I it does. It feeds into the discussion. So how do you feel about the streaming service slash, I'm going to call it the HBO um well, A&E did it with Breaking Bad and with Vertical right. Saul. So this this whole idea of creating 8 to 10 to 12 episodes and then taking a year off and then dropping another 8 to 10 episodes is different than the 23 to 32 episodes that are dropped on your syndicated television. And then they take about, I don't know, two months off and then they start right back up again. And I think it's probably 23 episodes, actually, if I'm looking at my Flash. Um, if I go back to the Flash on the CW and look at how many episodes per season, they, they go at a pretty robust clip, though, as far as number of episodes. What do you think about this, Bill? They drop eight, ep- eight to ten episodes. We can binge it. We can watch it slowly. And then we have to wait a year to right. get the next grouping. What are the, the good sides and the bad sides to that? No, that's a great question, actually, because you're right. Um, the gaps between seasons are longer than, um, you know, just dropping episodes. And I think that it, it all has to do with viewership consumption and um, noticing that we're in a different pace of living than, let's say, our parents with syndicated television. Um, when the offerings weren't that, I think I would say it's just a lot of it has to do with uh, kind of a cycle lifestyle, um, meaning that uh, it's almost as it's kind of funny to say, but how the TV seasons really dictated our behaviors of uh, our viewership, meaning we know that it's getting cold outside. Um, it's the fall and new TVs are coming and, you know, this is what's going to happen. And everything was like clockwork. Well, it seems like we're not in that type of clockwork mode anymore. And um, we're functioning 
more sporadically. Uh, when people take vacations, it's not really in the summer like it used to be. Now it's, it could be any time they want. And um, that's how the TV is. Is like, you know, I'm, I have time to watch my show now and, are, and I want to, you know, see all of it because I don't have time to uh, delay it for three months because I may lose interest even though I'm interested. And so I have my interest now. So I guess what I'm trying to say is we're catering to the, tef- the uh, deficit attention disorder. Yeah, it's kind of like it's really a macro and micro economics discussion in a lot of ways. Um, but speaking to your point and then maybe adding a, an additional point to the discussion, it, it does speak to how behavior has changed. It's probably it probably speaks to how our schedules are not like they used to be. Um, it definitely probably speaks to we're not as tied to the weather patterns in the land like we used to be and and I mean, you could work a, a second shift, you could work a combination of shifts, you could be a sole proprietor. And what does that have to do with watching shows? You don't want to be tied to the television set on Tuesday night at 8 right. o'clock because that's when your TV show comes on, right? And we don't have DVD players and DVRs like we used to do. So now we have these streaming services that say, you know what, what you can do? We can just drop these episodes and you can watch them when you like. So you can. Right. it's kind of giving more flexibility to the viewer. I think right. that's probably something to think about. I want I want you to maybe think about quality. When you think about the quality of these shows, is that worth the wait, the year to 18-month wait, <clears throat> better call Saul, um, that mm-hmm. we have to wait for some of the, the next seasons to come out? Would you rather have a, a property that comes out more regularly but the quality isn't as high? Or would you rather right. have wait 18 months for your show to come out? Well, I mean, I think a part of it, too, is just interest as well. Um, you know, how, how does it hold somebody's interest? How does it hold, uh, you know, they have a show that they really like, and now they have to wait you know, a year to do it. And But, I mean, maybe it does, like you, you, you talked about, um, it still speaks to people's busy schedules, even though quality isn't really taken into account. Um, I, I, it, I don't know. I think the production value doesn't suffer because um, there's a longer break and maybe there's more reanalyzation of the script. Uh, I, I look at uh, Lost in Space season one and season two as an example. Uh, out of the gate, season one wasn't that great. Um, like I said before, it, was, it had highs and lows. And and this one, uh, I think from the sixth episode all the way to the end, they really tightened up the script a lot better. Now, maybe they had more time to reflect audience reaction, um, critic reaction, their own um, creative um, internal discussions to see what they can do different in the season two, because usually it's the season one with these because they had a lot of more time and creativity involved um, to, to make a better episode. But clearly uh, for me, um, Lost in Space season two is a lot better than, um, and I say a lot better than season one because they tightened up the script. They had a lot more going on. It wasn't just centered around the family. It wasn't centered around all these characters and learning about them. And some of it was just flat out boring. 
So <clears throat> I don't know. It's, 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 it's a good question. It's hard to really answer uh, from a quality standpoint how you're going to get it because, as you and I know, Jessica Jones 1 was phenomenal and Jessica Jones 2 was terrible. And then three kind of saved itself a bit, right? Yeah. And um, that followed kind of the same patterns. And Daredevil one and two, I thought was really good. And three, maybe not as I don't know. I mean, I think you like three a lot. Yeah. But it, it just it, it it's very sketchy. Um, I think uh, Stranger Things is another one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's it, another yeah. one. It's oh, it's this last one was fun because. It, for us that grew up in the 80s, they had the whole ball thing going, and that was pretty cool. Um, but I don't think it was as strong as the previous seasons. No. Um, so it's kind of like a burnout that's there, too. But I don't think it has to do with the lengthy gaps of uh, production. I think it mm-hmm. still has to do uh, ultimately with the, with the script writing. Okay. Yeah, I agree. So I guess our discussion, our little rabbit hole, we came to the conclusion that the the dropping of these episodes once every year to 18 months is not the number one criteria for a quality of show. It's actually the production value, the script writing, the character work, and the that that entity is interesting enough and well done so yeah. that we it keeps our interest going. And when we look at this, entity back to last lost in space season two bill what did you think about the overall entertainment value uh, we didn't comment on visual aesthetic yet though i wonder oh. if we should do that yeah visual aesthetic is um was excellent i believe uh because you had to deal with more space um robot uh think about the first season as they're just on land the whole time so it, it was definitely done with a budget right and the second one, they dropped a lot more into it because you had to get into the more of the nuances of space, you know, um, you know, kind of a cool scene um, was when uh, Maureen and, and um, John were kind of floating above the atmosphere. And all of a sudden, this kind of uh, astral whale comes swimming along on top yeah. of the planet and it came out of nowhere and they were stunned like we were stunned. And that to me was a great visual effect and uh, how cool um, that overall um, they just really just ratcheted up a, a notch in the visuality of, of this and the fish and special effects. Yeah, I thought so as well. I thought the, it felt it like, feel like a sci-fi. There you go. Sci-fi has unfortunately some problems to it. And production quality is usually it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Sci-Fi Channel, this is another rabbit hole, but it's a fun one. It is. It, it's a half-click better than if you had siblings growing up and you used to put together your own productions and you know write your own little skits and perform them with each other. And um, I digress. Okay, so... Definitely the, the visual aesthetic on the Sci-Fi Channel was was not great, although I haven't watched the Sci-Fi Channel show in a while. I'm wondering if it's recovered and it's found its greatness. Well, it expands to its credit. The first three seasons was Sci-Fi. Oh. They did what they did well enough. They had a way of you, – you just watched at the way, the way a, a spaceship – 
you know, tunneled through space or what it did. You're like, oh, that's Sci-Fi Channel. Um, yeah. Okay, so I want to give some ratings, some idea of a metric or two that are out there. So we kind of agree that the IMDB metric is pretty unreliable. It um, it can rate certain things really high and like, okay, why is that rated so high? So we're going to go over to Rotten Tomatoes, Bill. Yeah. And the tomato meter, it puts it at an 83%, this entity's property, and the audience score... 85%. So I think that's oh. very interesting, isn't it? That uh, doesn't happen often, does it? No, I, very, very infrequently, what I would say, is it the case that you have such a close kind of score there. And these are high scores as well. Uh, it's not always the easiest thing to do to get certified fresh, like Better Call Saul and some of these right. others. Um, well, but, a lot of times, the, when you look at these two scores, and Anybody who's listening to us ramble on through this last 45 minutes <laughs> will see that the critics will tend to be a little more in-depth, right? Character mm-hmm. development, plot development, does it make sense? Did they lose its way? Um, and then entertainment value. Audiences, entertainment value, number one. Yeah. Am I being entertained? That's why I'm watching this. I'm not really watching this to think or... Get some lesson of morality and you know torturing robots, um, but <laughs> you're like Tom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So that's to have that. That reminds me of something that happened this last week at work. I started a new job working with teenagers. This is another rabbit hole, but it's fun. Um, you're right. Okay, so validate. I'm going to do the the intelligent thing is validate when someone is actually correct about a critique. They don't care about the moral <laughs> dilemmas and the kind of the parallels to the our treatment of of um of people immigrants in the United States, which I think they're kind of doing in the show, but in a real sophisticated way. They're not beating their chest, but they're still doing it. This last week, at one of the teenagers, um said that I came across as a feminist. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Because I lectured, I lectured this boy that he was a minor and he had put himself in a situation where I thought there was some abuse. I won't go into any of it. And I had a couple of these conversations with the group and by the end of it, by the end of the week, the boy thought I was I should be wearing a T-shirt that says I am a feminist. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I'm doing something wrong because usually intelligent people who are supportive of a, a way of thinking, they usually don't fall into these biases where they alienate large groups of people when they're effective with it. I'm right. going to give that huge caveat. Um, definitely, if you have conviction about anything, you'll probably tick some people off because – most people go through life just finding people to be angry at who have conviction about something. <laughs> I choose not to decide, but I choose to antagonize. Yeah, I will not make a decision. I will have no values of my own, but I will be angry at you because you have values. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a scary thing when our and our youth is being educated with social media, where you just fling terms that we think uh, we know. And we understand. Yeah. I mean, it's a, 
Yeah, so that whole conversation. It looked like a feminist. It looked like a feminist. It must be a feminist. I know. And how did what did I do to get that label is that I was identifying abusive behavior in some of the in these situations and the in those situations the individuals who were doing the abusing happened to be male. <laughs> I was like <laughs> And there's a way that our culture actually I'm gonna get on a soapbox here. I I mean, we have to be very careful as I skirt the, the edge of the abyss here. Um you know, we can definitely buy into this systemic way of looking at people where we're marginalizing people and we're abusing people in the along the way and um so that came up this week and that just reminded me of the zinger where i went into that rabbit hole my little speech about the well thank you tom explaining the difference between the critical and audience review on rotten tomatoes yes we we uh, we (laughs) ascribe to be critics um But we have our area of expertise. Bill is actually trained and schooled in the critique of films, and I am a therapist. So I just kind of jump in with my little emotional opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Which we all enjoy. At least I do, Tom. At least I do. And the two other people listening to this podcast that made it this far. We have two other listeners. <laughs> On this journey, this walk. Because we're lost somewhere in the galaxy. Uh, I think we lost him at robot. Yeah. <laughs> that was the fourth word of the podcast. Today. <laughs> All right, Tom, let's do our, our rating. First, you, your rating is payoff, where I'm numerical. So, Tom, Correct. did this show give you the payoff that you were looking for? Yes. Um, I, that's a resounding, non-meandering yes. And my payoff came when a sobbing, hugging mother and father watched their children walk into a spaceship to leave to safety. It happened when Judy was given the autonomy to make a really tough decision that led to that decision that led to the children and parents separating. It was the support of Will and his expertise and his scientific um, capability. I just love the way this family supports their children. And Mm -hmm. that is a huge payoff for me. Even, um, even Penny got her Mm -hmm. day to shine. And that's what this show is all about at the end of the day. From my opinion, I am on a family show that really, uh, you know, tries its – I wouldn't say tries its best, does a good job of uh, showing a family dynamic. Now, it's not the, um, you know, the real-life circumstances that you and I live in, but they – It's not. You know, they try – I think from a dramatic standpoint – um, you know, Maureen is really irritating most of the time, and um, but uh, I personally started liking her uh, more in this. So my rating is I definitely give it an eight. Uh, I thought, and I texted you that uh, from episode six on, they just put the pedal to the metal, and they did look back and tightened up the script, tightened up the story, a lot of dramata, dramata. There you go. <laughs> That's a new word. <laughs> I'm 
trademark. Dramato. It's like it's bravado and drama mixed. <laughs> The drama pays off, and the ending is great, and it's memorable, and there, it gives a lot of curiosity because you have aliens that are that are left on the, the ship, and all the parents are leaving and their kids, and so there's going to be – hopefully they tie it in um, not as like, oh, hey, they just stumbled onto each other, but it really becomes a treasure hunt. And, um, but I, I think that the beginning of season three ha- holds a lot of promise. It's just going to be interesting to see how it holds out to the end. But yeah. from what I believe, um, this Lost in Space season two was a lot better than the first one. And I was really excited, um, by the end of it and thought, wow, that was a really good show. I agree. Yeah. I'm definitely a lot more interested heading into season three than I was heading into season two. And yeah. that's huge because I don't, I can't say that of stranger things. No, you're yeah. right. I can't say that of stranger things either. Uh, I I'm there with you, but I can't say that about dark three. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it speaks to the hit or miss value of this as, as we head into kind of a free form of conversation and our review of lost in space season two is over. Um, we have some shows that we've been watching, Bill, and we can pique yeah. the interest of our audience. We hope, yes, uh, because we've been watching Ragnarok, we've been watching Lock and Key, we've been watching October Fest or whatever the name of that thing is on Netflix. Yeah, which I could say, I, I'm going to give you. Uh, I want to write up my couple paragraph review of how bad October Faction is. And um, how a show should not be done. And okay. it does feel like old-time sci-fi channel shows where you all of a sudden are walking along and you're thinking you're watching something that has some value, and then you step in a hole and you're lost forever. <laughs> <laughs> not in a good way. <laughs> not in a good way. Uh... It's not like Alice in Wonderland hole. It's like Black Hole. <laughs> yeah, there's no air, there's no light. It's just a vacuum. You're trapped, You're trapped with Maximilian for all of those. There's a reference that nobody will get. Yeah, I didn't even get that, but I don't get a lot these days. Um, <laughs> Lock and Key, we thought, had some promise. I think when That's we reviewed that. It. I wrapped it up. You're in the middle of it. I am in the... Well, I am six episodes deep, so I'm... Okay. I'm getting there. I'm wondering if I need to go back and watch. But we're going to review that all in one episode, right, Bill? Yeah, that's going to be interesting because uh, the little preview of that show, it does a a slow, what I call the slow reveal, Mm. and uh, which is a very good way of um, telling a story if you could pull it off. Yeah, the the slow reveal works if the reveal works. Um, Exactly. Once you get there, and you're like, "Ooh, that was actually pretty good." And if it, it's like anything, though. If you have a quick reveal, although I tend to like slow reveal over a quick reveal. Yeah. Um. Usually, if something happens too quick at the front end, like, okay, they're they know that this isn't that great, so they're giving me the big bang at the beginning, so at least they (laughs) they can tell the viewer that I got something. (laughs) Here's your hamburger, sir. 
<laughs> yeah, like, here's your hamburger. Enjoy licking the tomato packets. <laughs> that come later in the show. <laughs> or the ketchup packets, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I'll take tomato. You'll be you'll be sucking mustard packets by <laughs> minute thirty seven. Um, and, and then you have uh, Ragnarok, which is um, a Norwegian um, story. So I am one of those that will put in the subtitles or the titles, okay, and and not take the the weird sounds coming out of the people's mouth, known as English. Where their lips don't match up, and there does the voice of what the character should sound like. So I, I always, that's how I did Dark as well. I, I like the German, and I'll read the captions. I, mm. you know, I don't have a hard time doing that. But uh, I'm really enjoying Ragnarok. Um, actually, becoming out of these four, probably my the one I like the most. Believe it or not. Well, let's review the four again because I've only got three: Lost in Space, Lock Lost and Key, Ragnarok, and okay. October Faction. Oh, October Faction! You're including that in there, okay? That means I'm going to because I actually put time into it. How many episodes of that did you watch? I don't know. I fast forward a majority of it. My wife just started making fun of me, and then my <laughs> daughter came in and she was watching. She's like, "Dad, really? You're watching this?" It's 18 episodes. I can't. I can't put in the work to watch 18. That might have to be like a five-minute. It's gonna no. have to be a five-minute Bill's Corner review. Like we'll give yeah, you five minutes. A, that uh, I, I could probably do it in three. Okay, let's do that in one of these. Like Bill's Corner, three minutes. Bill's- October faction, go. Go. Yep. We'll do that in in one of our future episodes. So. Yeah. I'll write it down and, and explain why. It was a cow pie, and if you look at uh, Rotten Tomatoes, they pretty much back me up on that. Yeah, what's it at, 11%? Something like that, and even the audience, I think, is slowly dipping below 50. Yeah, which is hard to do. Um, I know sometimes we've wondered about these scores, but when you get over to Rotten Tomatoes and you... You start to lump it all in, and you start to it. It starts to become a longitudinal study in this because yeah. it's happening over the course of years with hundreds and thousands of people entering in with their metric, and it starts to become at least a way to a benchmark. It is a benchmark. Yeah, yeah I agree. And then you know, um, and you and I even on this podcast have not necessarily agreed with either critics or the audience, and kind of scratched our heads of who, what were either those groups thinking when we've seen something so yeah and scratching your head is a dangerous proposition when the top of your head is bald i just have to say that <laughs> it will leave a mark <laughs> if you're not careful. With that, on that note on that note that has been our review of lost in space season two so for now and until next time so long i know